It is really good to be back in the pulpit this morning. It seems like it's been a while. I know we're well into the month of June, but this is the first time this summer that I've been here in the pulpit. So that means some of the children may have forgotten these sheets. I, I did remember to prepare note sheets for our kids, as I do each summer. Our children, and that is children up to teenagers, teenagers are excluded from this, can fill out the note sheet, and if they see me afterwards, I will have a special candy prize for them for listening carefully and taking notes this morning. So parents, if you did not grab that yet, they're on the welcome table in the, the lobby. You can go get those note sheets. Today is obviously Father's Day, as we've been talking about, so myself naturally spent some time thinking about my father. As most of you know from previous references to my father, he was a farmer, and he's retired now, but one of the things that always amazed me about my father was how he could go just straight with his tractor. When it came to work in a field, it didn't matter if he was cultivating a dirt field or sowing a, a new field or plowing a stubble field. His rows were straight. You could almost look from one end to the other. And, and you have to understand, in our fields where I grew up, our rows were half a mile long usually. So when we're talking straight, that's a long ways to go straight. He was good at that. He could make it straight. Now, I understand from current farming now, my dad has told me some about the, the equipment now, making a straight line now is not that impressive because basically he says you turn the tractor, you hit a button, and the computer with the GPS takes control, and it drives you down, you'll vary maybe an inch or two as you go down the, the field. There's no skill involved anymore other than pointing at the general direction you want to go. But when he did it, that wasn't the case. He had to drive straight, adjusting as he went, bouncing up and down over the field without wavering. Well, when I started working in the field, my dad taught me the secret to the straight rows. He said that the secret was to ensure that your first row, your guide road, was perfectly straight. He, he would point the tractor in the general direction that he wanted to go, and then he would look far out into the distance, and he'd find something out there in that direction. It had to be a ways out. It couldn't be close because you'd vary too much. Look two, three miles out and find a tree or, or something that you could use as a guide, and then he would set down the field and never vary looking at that mark that he had made, and that would give him a perfectly straight road to start with. And then he'd work everything off that row from that point on. My, my dad also told me, though, about one time when that process didn't work. He, he was surprised, but the process didn't work. He he'd started a field after dark, so he did what he normally would do, pull in the field, figure out where he's going to go, line up, and he picked a light way out there that he was going to use as his guide, and he starts going down the field. He said he was over halfway down the field before he realized his light was moving. Here he had picked a neighbor's tractor in a field a little ways away and, and the neighbor was going a little cross from where he was going and, and his guide light was moving. So rather than have a nice straight row, he ended up with a nice gentle curve as he finished that. And that whole field then was worked in a curve that time. Well, this story illustrates though how important it is for us to, to focus on a stable guide if we want to keep from drifting from our desired path. The Christian life is often described as a path that we are to follow, and it's a, a straight path that we're on. 
That really has been Paul's point in his letter to the Corinthians, that we're to be on the straight path and not drift to the side. Now, I recognize it's been a month since we were last in Paul's letter. Where we're picking up, as you can see on the screen here at the start of chapter 3. So let me remind you briefly what Paul's covered so far. As he's written this letter to the, the church in, in Colossae, his focus has been Christ. Christ has been his focus. He has celebrated the glorious truth that, that Christ came to address the, the ultimate damage that sin brings upon men and women. Christ offers the forgiveness of sin. Christ restores the relationship between the sinner and God. Christ transforms the sinner so that the sinner becomes increasingly like Christ. That is the glories of Christ. And the first chapter has held up Christ forth to gaze on him and this glorious work that Christ does. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, Paul got down to the core motivation behind this letter. Why did he write this letter to the church in Colossae? Well, he wrote it because there was some false teaching that had been brought into the city that was beginning to distract, or at least risking the, the fact that it might distract people from the work of Christ. It could damage the church. False teaching is always from Satan. It may pretend to be otherwise. It may present itself as being from Christ, but it's from Satan. And Satan seeks to distract believers from a focus on Christ so that we'll drift away from following Christ and from serving him. So in the second chapter, Paul begins a counterattack against these distractions that Satan offers. And his counterattack begins by again celebrating Christ. He'd lifted up a glorious Christ, said focus on Christ, and now he celebrates Christ again in, ch in chapter 2. You might say he urged us to, to not look at these other fainter lights that might be drifting to the side. Focus on the, the brilliance of Christ. Look at Christ alone. Marvel anew at his person work. When we gaze upon Christ, everything that Satan offers pales by comparison. In the final verses of chapter 2, Paul warned about one category of dangers that, that Satan tempts us towards. Dangers that we called legalism in the last sermon when we were in this text. If we picture the, the life that Christ calls us, as I said, as that straight road, legalism is one of the cliffs on the side of that road. If we follow these lights that cause us to, to drift, if we're looking at those, we'll go off this cliff before we even know we're there. Legalism is the cliff that, that causes us to focus on our own efforts rather than Christ. Try to do things on our own rather than look at Christ. As I mentioned last time when we were looking at that dangerous cliff on that side, we can fall off the other side of the road too. The other side of the road is what we call antinomianism or licentiousness. Those are big words, and I promise that, Lord willing, next week we will define those more fully for us. They're the dangers on the other side. Basically, if this side of the cliff is focusing on our own efforts, the other side of the cliff is, well, let's not put any effort forth at all. Those are the dangers that Satan tries to tempt us towards by drifting lights instead of gazing at the fixed light of Christ. Now, before dealing with the danger on this other cliff, Paul's dealt with this cliff of legalism and he's turning his own thoughts across the road again to the other cliff. Before he gets there, 
he again focuses on Christ. As he swings his attention from one side to the other, he pauses once more to gaze on Christ. Christ is where our focus must remain. He is the stable guide. He is the one that keeps us from all these errors. Christ, specifically as you can see from the title this morning, Paul thinks about the resurrection of Christ. Not only are we to look at Christ, but we're to focus on our union with Christ. The, the fact that we're united with Christ gives a number of implications to our lives. And, and we see this because Paul, if you look through these couple chapters, is giving us a series of therefores. We're united with Christ through faith. Of course, we're only united if we have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's assumption, remember in this letter, all along has been he's writing to believers. He's writing to people who know that Jesus Christ died for their sins. He know people who have accepted the fact that they deserved eternal damnation. People that have trusted that Christ died on their behalf and by faith God forgives their sins and gives them Christ's righteousness. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, talk to me afterwards. Paul is making the assumption that these are believers. I'd love to share with you how you can be one of these people. Paul is writing to people who believe in Jesus Christ and who are united with him, and he starts giving us the string of therefores. Chapter 2, verse 16 was a therefore as he warned about that cliff. Because you're united with Christ, therefore stay away from this error of legalism. Now we have another therefore as we start our section in, in chapter 3. Therefore gaze upon this aspect of Christ, that he's, un, he's resurrected from the dead. And then next week, Lord willing, verse 5, there's another therefore. Therefore avoid this cliff over here of antinomianism. The point of our section this morning, therefore, this gazing upon Christ, our point is quite simple. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are united with him. Christ died for our sins. And then Christ did what? rose from the dead. We all ought to be able to say that with great joy. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. We are united with the resurrected Christ. So very simply, all we need to understand this morning is that Paul says, our union with the resurrected Christ changes everything. It's that simple, folks. It changes everything. Our union with the resurrected Christ changes everything. Of course, we're only looking at four short verses this morning, so Paul doesn't have time to greatly expand on what everything means, but he does manage to show us that our union with Christ means that we have two things to do and three things to know. I categorize those two things to do and three things to know as everything. It changes everything, but specifically here's two things to do and three things to know. Before we look at these things this morning, let's go ahead and read our verses. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. <coughs> when Paul writes here, therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, he's not questioning whether this is a fact or not. 
Paul is making an assumption. It's his assumption that everything he is about to say is based on the fact that you have been raised with Christ. So what he's doing is saying, if in your mind you can confirm you have been raised with Christ, in other words, if you examine your, yourself and say, yeah, I'm united with Christ. Christ has risen from the dead. He died for my sins. I accepted in faith he did that. He rose from the dead. I am, yeah, I'm raised with Christ. If you can confirm in your mind you have been raised with Christ, then the things he's about to, to write are given. It's the assumption that base on these things, that these things are based on. And he's pointing to the resurrection of Christ here at the start of the verse. He, he, he's not referring to our future resurrection. He's not saying, as he says elsewhere, because Christ rose from the dead, you can be confident, you will too. He's pointing to our present. Christ has been raised. We are united with him through faith. That means we have already been raised with him because he's been raised. As I've said a couple moments ago, our union with the resurrected Christ changes everything. Everything. We have been raised with Christ. Specifically, that means we have two things to do. Two things we or to do. You can see these two things by, by looking at the two main verbs in the first two verses. The, the verbs that are the main verbs of these verses are imperatives. That, that means commands, instructions, things that we are to do. They're not suggestions. They, these are not considered optional for us. Remember, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ... Examine your mind. Have I been raised with Christ? Yes, I'm a believer. I've been raised with Christ. Well, then this is what I have to do. If we've indeed been raised with Christ, we're united with him through faith, then we're obligated to do these things. First, we are to seek after heaven's priorities. Seek after heaven's priorities. Paul says, keep seeking the things above. Now, in case we're unclear about where above is, Paul helps us out. What does he say after that? Keep seeking the things above. Where's above? Oh, it's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's what above means. Folks, we're to seek after the things of heaven. Or as I suggest in my wording, heaven's priorities. That's what we're to seek after. Now, what does it mean to seek after something? Seeking after something simply means striving to obtain it. We're to strive to obtain what heaven considers important. Continually, constantly, keep seeking, keep striving, keep trying to obtain what heaven considers the priority to be. But what does heaven consider important? Well, Paul points us in this verse to Christ. He, he places Christ in our minds, the, the resurrected Christ, the one who's seated in the position of, of majesty and honor and power and authority, the one at the right hand of God. That's what that means. The right hand of God, that's the position of power and authority and honor. And Christ is there. 
Hebrews 1 tells us that, that Christ was given this position as a result of the fact he made purification for our sins. The Gospels record how he did that, how he lived his sinless life as, as he took on humanity and lived that sinless life completely doing the Father's will. How at the very last he offered up his life as a sacrifice for our sins, payment that our sin deserved was taken on by his death. Hebrews tells us that having accomplished his mission, that earned Christ the right to sit down in this position of authority. This place where Paul points to, seated at the right hand of God. That's why it really isn't a stretch at all to conclude that when Paul says that we are to seek after heaven's priorities, what Paul is instructing us to do with this very brief command is he's telling us we are to strive for that which will build upon Christ's work. That which will magnify his work. We say up there, joyfully magnify Christ. That means we are to seek after the things that magnify what he accomplished. Now, I'm taking time to walk us through really a logical chain here because I want us to understand that when Paul makes this very brief transition from dealing with legalism to antinomianism, as he shifts his gaze across this road, he, he reminds us that our efforts are to be expended on heaven's priorities. We have to spend our energy somewhere. We can spend it on these useless self-efforts that lead to legalism, that, that is a path to destruction. We can spend them on why he'll show us next next weak efforts to not be righteous, but to just engage our own pleasures. We have to spend our energy somewhere, but he says the only way we'll be focused on spending things that won't send us over these cliffs of destruction is that we expend our energies on the things that are aligned with Christ's mission, the things that led to him sitting at the right hand of God. I'd summarize these things in short by just saying, we need to expend our energies on the redemption of others and the culmination of our own redemption. There are people all around us who need redemption. We're called by God to share with them that Christ is the only one who can redeem them from their sins. How much of your energy is spent on that? How much of my energy, for that matter, is spent on that? How much energy do we expend on the redemption of others? If it's very little, then we're probably in danger following a moving like that Satan's dangling out there before us, rather than maintaining a steady gaze upon Christ. If we're gazing upon Christ, we want to share him with others. We want to tell them about what he has done, about the marvelous work that he completed that can redeem them. We also re need to remember that our own redemption is not finished. Yes, our redemption is assured. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, he will finish what he has begun in us. We will reach the culmination of our salvation. But God's intent is that as we reach for that future time, we will continually be increasing to become more like Christ. Our redemption is not complete. 
Becoming more like Christ takes effort. You, you know, things like reading your Bible, praying alone, and praying with other believers. Attending corporate worship and, and times of corporate fellowship. Hint, hint, that means being in church. That takes effort. How much of our energy is spent on these things that strive for Christ-likeness? Again, if it's very little, if we examine our weekend, very little of our life energy is spent on these things, then we're probably following a light that Satan has put out there that is actually slowly moving us away from Christ. Only you can evaluate your life. Yet, unless your life is far different from the life of the average American Christian, you are likely doing a very poor job seeking after heaven's priorities. An average American Christian is a poor Christian by biblical measures. Our union with the resurrected Christ changes everything. The first thing that we are to do is seek after heaven's priorities. Second, we have another thing to do as well. Second, we are to think on heavenly truths. We are to think on heavenly truths. I know the New American Standard translates verse 2 as set your mind on the things above. And that really is a, a good translation. It's kind of a dynamic equivalent translation, but it's a good translation because Paul uses the word that literally means think. We are to think about the things above not the things of this earth. It's an active engagement of the mind that, that Paul is, is concerned with in this verse. It's, it's thinking, intentionally thinking. This is somewhat similar to the first command in, in we are to seek, but seeking is more about active expenditure of energy. This is internal thinking. There, there's some difference. There, there can be a disconnect at times between what our minds are engaged in and what our bodies are doing. We, we, we may do something, even, even the right thing we may be doing, while our thoughts are wandering elsewhere. We may live in our minds in a way that there is, is all kinds of, basically, a hidden world in our minds where we're thinking about things that no one outside knows because we're not letting our energy show there. Well, Paul writes, there are ultimately two categories in which we can slot everything we might think about. Two categories and only two categories. We can think about the things above, heavenly truths, or we can think about things on the earth, temporal truths, if you will. It's only when we think about the things above that we focus on Christ. Letting the, the things of earth occupy our, our thinking space that, that opens us up again to, to following these drifting lights that, that Satan dangles all around us that, that can lead us over a cliff. I, I suspect that you understand the main point here. But, but let's pick it apart just a, a little bit so we can work through how this really fleshes itself out in, in real life. Think on heavenly truths. Does this mean that, that we spend all of our awake time thinking about the Bible and its teaching? It'd be pretty hard to live that way, wouldn't it? You know, if we spent all of our time, 100% of our time thinking about the Bible, we would get pretty hungry. 
because we wouldn't be thinking about eating. Eventually, that wouldn't work so well, would it? It would be nearly impossible, actually, for us to even make friends who are unbelievers if we spent 100% of our time thinking about the Bible. After all, unbelievers are people who've rejected the Bible. They don't want to think about the Bible. I mean, actually, they do want to think about the Bible, but they don't know it. So if all we want to do is talk about the Bible, we're not going to make friends with unbelievers. We have to branch out just a little bit from strictly biblical ideas. And yet, Paul says we should be thinking on heavenly things. How can we harmonize this? How can we put this together? Clearly, I expect you recognize Paul's not suggesting that we live our lives so that 100% of our conscious thoughts on biblical truths in the narrow sense of what the Bible teaches. So what does Paul mean? Well, I know all of you uh, enough to know that you spend some of your time thinking on what we would call earthly things. I, I listen into your conversations enough. I'm part of your conversations enough. You spend time thinking about politics. Some of you, a lot of time thinking about politics. You spend time thinking about sports. Again, some of you, a lot. You think about fantasy games. You think about fantasy universes. How much time, hours, have you spent watching and talking about the Marvel Universe and the the DC Universe and the Star Wars Universe and so on? Some of you spend time thinking about hobbies. You think about retirement plans. You think about trips. The reality is you think about a lot of things. And so do I. Now, for the most part, these things are not sinful in and of themselves. So it's not wrong to think about them on some level. And yet Paul is telling us that we must think of these things in the context of thinking about things above. There has to be a framework within which we think about these things. A framework that is defined as thinking about the things above. We must think about these things in a biblical fashion. We, we cannot think about any of these things, no matter what they are, independent from God. We must think about them in light of what God has revealed. <clears throat> so let me just take the first one as an example, that, the first thing that I mentioned, politics. We, we live in a political world. It's proper for us to, to think about the political world around us. It's proper for us to be engaged in the political world around us. But we must do so as Christians. Some of you spend hours getting all worked up over the direction that our political climate is going. You get angry, you get worried, you get fearful, and so forth. That is not thinking about the things above. God has revealed that He controls the directions of nations. God has, has revealed that he raises nations up and brings them down. God has told us that he appoints leaders who accomplish his hidden purposes for the nations. Thinking about the things above means that we trust God in the political climate, even when that climate moves in a way that we wish it did not. It also means if we think about the things above, that we use any moment of the political climate, any opportunity that the political world presents to display and share Christ with anyone that we can. In fact, 
Thinking about things above means we focus on Christ so much that the direction that the political climate moves and the things that are happening in the political world around us, it becomes just background noise compared to what we really care about, which is Christ. Yes, it's there. It's real. It happens. There's noise, but it's in the background because Christ is much more important than this. You know, I am very good at putting noise in the background. It drives my wife crazy. I can be watching a television show or, or reading a book and she can start talking to me and that's just background noise. I, I tune it out. I, I can even answer to it a little bit. I can give a uh-huh at the right pause be, without even having a clue what she's talking about. It's background noise. Well, everything is background noise compared to Christ if we're thinking biblically. If we're thinking about the things above, thinking on heavenly things that we repeat this process that I just talked about for politics with every one of our earthly interests. We place all of our earthly concerns into the context of Christ. Our earthly concerns are just background noise compared to our focus on Christ. Yes, these other concerns exist. These other interests exist. And, and it's good that they do, but they do not determine where our thoughts go. Our thoughts are stable in Christ. Our union with the resurrected Christ changes everything. The second thing that we are to do is think on heavenly truths. We are to seek after heaven's priorities and we are to think on heavenly truths. Paul writes about two things we're to do, and then he grounds his commands in theology. Paul takes, we're to do these, thing, these two things, and then he gives us three things we're to know that give us the, the foundation for why we are to do these. Now, I know I said there's two things that we're to do and three things to know. I also recognize when I look at the clock, our time's moving fairly quickly. Don't worry, we're still okay. We're fine. Look at verse 3. Do you see that little word for at the beginning? F-O-R. That, that little word shows us that these are the reasons, the, the foundations for the commands that Paul's get, just given. We're to do the two commands because of the things he is about to write. Reason number one. Our life is disconnected from this world. Why do we think on heavenly things? Why do we seek after the things above? Because our life is disconnected from this world. Our life is disconnected. For you have died. Yes, we have risen with Christ, but in order for us to rise with Christ, let's not forget that we also died with him. Death totally severs our connection to this world. It was only two weeks ago that I and the, the rest of the missions team were in Vienna, Austria. Now, I've mentioned politics this morning. I'm sure there were political things going on in Vienna while we were there. Yet, I have no idea what they were. Never once did I have any inkling of a desire to see what was happening in Austrian politics. Frankly, I didn't care. I'm pretty sure that none of the other team members did either. Doing such felt like it'd just be a waste of time to, to figure out what's going on in Austrian politics. As Americans, we are mostly disconnected from the politics of Austria. 
Well, as Christians, we are totally disconnected from this world. We are as disconnected as the dead are from the living. Why would we waste time seeking things of this earth? Why would we waste time thinking about things on this earth when we are disconnected by death from this world? Our union with the resurrected Christ changes everything. Our life is disconnected from this world. Number two, our life is totally secure in Christ. Totally secure. Paul uses the word hidden. He says, our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a description of security. Our life, our eternal life, what we have now because we died and we rose again, it's a spiritual life. We've already been raised spiritually. Our life is as secure as it can be because it's been hidden away. You know, I take things that I care about, really care about, like our will, and we hide it away in a lockbox for security. Well, our life has been hidden with Christ. That is as secure as it can get. First, it's with Christ. Remember, Christ is seated where? Right hand of God, that position of authority and honor and power. doesn't get more secure than the divine Christ. Second, He is in heaven. It's in God. It's with Christ in God. It's in the heavens. Nothing on this world can touch our life. That's the point Paul's made is hidden where it cannot be touched by anything here. It's already hidden in God. The thing is, all these things that are trying to distract us from focusing on Christ, all these things, they're here. They're here on this world. They, they try to convince us that, that they will make our lives full, that, that they will make our lives important, that if we ignore these things, our lives will experience some sort of a damage, that, that ignoring these things here on this earth can destroy the, the fulfillment of our lives. But that's a lie. It's a lie because our lives are not here. Nothing here can destroy our lives because our lives are not here. It's, our lives are hidden in heaven. They're in Christ. And there they are totally secure. Our union with Christ changes everything. Our life is totally secure in Christ. Number three. Our life will fully reflect Christ's glory. Fully reflect Christ's glory. The resurrected Christ is coming again. There's no doubt about that. Scripture has revealed that over and over again. He is coming again. At Christ's first coming, Christ looked just like a man. He was everyday man. Just common everyday man. Not so when he comes again. When he comes again, he is coming in glory. The full glory of deity will be on absolute display There will be no denying his godness when he comes again. The first time he looked like everyday man, when he comes again, he looks like God in full glory. But look at what Paul says that means for us. He says, we also will be revealed with him in glory. Much of the challenge that we face now comes from the fact that the world all around us tells us that Christians 
do not matter. We don't matter. There's all kinds of distractions that are being offered up that, that we can chase that, that the world tells us will make us matter. There's fame, there's fortune, there's pleasure, there's respect. All these things that the world says that if you chase these things, you will become relevant. What we need to remember is none of those things hold a candle to what is truly relevant. None of them hold a candle to the brilliant glory of Christ. The whole world is going to see us when he returns reflecting the glory of Christ because as his image bears, when his glory comes shining in full, it bounces off us and reflects his glory to the world around us. That's our future. That's the picture Paul gives us here. When we look at the brilliance of Christ straight ahead, we won't be distracted by these other things that are trying to say, look to us to be relevant. Christ is the only relevant thing in the whole universe. Why would we chase after one of these lesser lights when the day will come that we will reflect the full glory of Christ? Our union with the resurrected Christ changes everything. Our life will fully reflect Christ's glory. As I said at the beginning, my dad was great at setting that straight line for a field. He knew to focus on a point out there in the distance and, and not look away from it as he established his guide pass. Of course, that didn't help him when his guide was moving. That, that night when he selected another tractor, he ended up with that curved initial roll instead of a straight one. Well, Christ is our guide. We're to focus on him because we are united to him. Our union with the resurrected Christ changes everything. We are to keep our gaze on him rather than looking at any of the moving lights that Satan throws up around us. Things that are trying to distract us away from the path we are to be on. In the short text this morning, this paragraph that's placed between the warnings on the one side and the warnings on the other, these destructive cliffs that are there, this short paragraph again reminds us that we are to be on the straight path of our Christian life. And as Paul has reminded us to keep our gaze ahead, he's told us there's two things for us to do. We're to seek after heaven's priorities and we're to think on heaven's truth. We're to do that because these commands are grounded in three things we are to know. We're to know our life is disconnected from this world, our life is totally secure in Christ, and our life will fully reflect Christ's glory. As we conclude this morning, this is Father's Day, so let me address fathers specifically. Fathers, what are you teaching your children? What are you teaching your children? You are to be showing them how to follow Christ. When our children are young, they don't understand enough truth to know Christ. They have to learn who Christ is. They have to know what, learn what Christ has done. They have to come to understand Christ. They don't have Christ initially to follow, but they have you, Dad. You're the one who is to imitate Christ so they can imitate you. You are the one who are to be gazing on Christ, keeping your path straight so that as your kids follow you, they're following Christ. 
Yes, that principle is true for all of us. But this morning, let me make it particularly relevant to our fathers. As they imitate you, are they imitating Christ? Our union with the resurrected Christ changes everything. Has it changed each of us enough so that when people follow us, they're on a straight line that leads right to Christ? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would indeed magnify your Son in our eyes this morning, that we would see him more fully, that we would be excited and inspired and enthused about the gaze that we have of Christ. May we see him in such brilliance that we would not be distracted by the many temptations that are around us, smaller lights trying to lead us astray. Father, I do pray in a special way for the fathers here today that they would be men who would be following Christ so much that their children can follow them and be guided to Christ. Father, I pray that all of us would be setting such an example in our lives so that as others look at us, they will see Christ. But Father, may it begin by us looking to Christ so much that we are seeking the things above, we are thinking on the things above rather than the things of this earth because we know who we are in Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen.